0: Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast, British Murders of course? I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this is the seventh episode of season six. I hope you enjoyed last week's collaboration episode with Bobby Holmes of Killer Stories podcast. Bobby came on the show to tell me the story of American murderer Thomas Montgomery, whilst I went on Bobby's show and told her the story of British murderer and necrophile David Fuller. Please check both of those episodes out if you haven't already. Before we get into this week's story, let's break the ice a little bit, as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. And here is this week's Dad Fact. When cleaning the inside of your car, start by dusting the upper surfaces, the dash, the air vents, the door panels, and finish by hoovering the floor. If you hoover the floor first, it'll be dirty again by the time you finish dusting. Use your head, gang. Hoover last the second and final opening icebreaker segment is this satsuji haiku this week's haiku comes courtesy of friend of the show rose bundy so brace yourselves for this one as i rip her jaw with my bare hands her eyes white a stare but no fight Bit a rhyme in there Vicious as ever from Rose Bundy, author of the Serial Killers book of Haiku 1 and 2. Feel free to send me your own murderous haiku efforts if you want them read out on a future episode. With my intro icebreakers complete, let's get into it. This case was suggested via email by listeners Jacob spencer Parkin and Anita Heaney. We're in the metropolitan borough of Rotherham this week, which is located in South Yorkshire. Specifically, we're in the town of wath upon Dern. It's pronounced Wath, or someone said Wath. Someone said Wath. Is it Wath-upon-Durn? I'm going to say Wath. So we're in Wath-upon-Durn, which is in South Yorkshire. Here are five quick fire facts about (laughs) Wath-upon-Durn. Sounds stupid saying Wath. Wath Wath-upon-Durn. Fact number one. Deep coal mining commenced in the area in the 18th century, and when the Durn and Dove Canal was opened at Wath in 1804, it was used predominantly to transport coal. Fact number two. The river Dern runs through the town of Wath, hence Wath, I never said Wath so many times hence Wath upon Dern and flows roughly east for more than fifty kilometres thirty miles from its source, which is located just inside West Yorkshire. Number three, Wath derives its name from the old Norse of Vad or Vath, meaning a ford, which is a shallow crossing in a river. Number four, Manvers Lake was created in the 1990s as part of the remediation works following the closure of the Wath Main and Manvers Main colliery complex, associated railway yards as well. And number five, English model Lucy Clarkson was educated at wath upon Dane Comprehensive School. She was the fourth official Lara Croft model. Lara Croft, of course, the main protagonist in the Tomb Raider video game franchise. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Wath-upon-Durn was 11,816. Let me quickly advise you this episode contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, including a graphic description of disembowelment. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week is Anthony Arkwright, who committed a series of brutal murders in August 1988 at the age of 21. Logically, that means he was either born in 1966 or 1967, though I couldn't find his exact date of birth anywhere online or in print. Anthony called the town of wath upon Dern his home. It was where he was born and where he grew up. He didn't have what you'd call a textbook childhood, though. Either side of Antony's birth were two siblings, which made him the middle of five children to his father, a local miner, and his mother, who I believe was called Zoe. By the time Anthony was four years old, his mum walked out on him and his siblings, leaving them without a mother figure in their lives. That appears to have been the start of what would be an extremely disturbing childhood and ultimately life for Anthony. Why his mum left the family home with such young kids is unknown, but perhaps what I'm about to tell you may have been the underlying reason. Some vicious rumours were going around that would plague Antony throughout his younger years and even into adulthood. His grandfather, a Lithuanian-born man named Stanislav or Stasis Pwydokis, I'm saying that wrong, I apologise, we'll go with Stasis, was said to have had an incestuous sexual relationship with Anthony's mum. Anthony was said to have been born due to said relationship and that his grandfather was, in fact, his father. It was all nonsense, but young Anthony wasn't to know that. With no stable mother figure in his life, Antony ended up being moved around the town and was placed in several care homes. Naturally, he felt no sense of belonging and took out his anger on other people. He did poorly at school and was eventually expelled. He spent his free time fighting other kids, vandalising property, robbing people, just generally causing as much mayhem as he possibly could. As a result he spent a lot of his younger years in a borstal and he'd go on to spend time in prison once he turned 18. The crimes he committed were classed as petty. His sentences came from convictions of burglary, theft and arson. It seems as if some help was brought in to try and get through to Antony but nothing came of it. He was just too unwilling to cooperate. Plenty of psychiatrists tried to help him turn his life around but he simply ignored them. Just carried on committing crimes. No doubt viewing himself as a survivor due to what had happened to him at the tender age of four, Anthony grew up to become a survival enthusiast. This was way before the time of Bear Grylls and Aunt Middleton, but those are the kind of people I picture when I imagine who he idolised. He fancied himself as a bit of an SAS survivalist, spent plenty of evenings in shelters he had made in the woods with the knife he kept hidden in one of his boots. At the age of 21, the tall and slim SAS wannabe moved into a council flat on Denman Road. It's a rather unmarkable British road, but suppose it may have looked different 34 years ago. I doubt it, though. Seeing as he spent most of his life so far on his own, you won't be surprised to hear that Anthony wasn't exactly a social butterfly. He was known in his building as a loner who spent more time sleeping in the woods than in his own bed. Work-wise, Anthony was employed by a scrapyard company close to the flat, but he never really worked there. Working wasn't something he enjoyed doing. That's evidenced by the amount of roles he went through before continually being let go for his absenteeism. He preferred to be in the local boozer having a pint, or committing more of the petty crimes he'd become so accustomed to doing. Apart from the SAS obsession and hiding in the bushes watching people walk by in his camo gear, Anthony had one other main passion in life, to become as infamous as Victorian-era serial killer Jack the Ripper. Anthony would openly tell people that he aspired to be like his heroes, Jack the Ripper and the Yorkshire Ripper, the latter of which was a fellow Yorkshireman named Peter Sutcliffe. It was the attention and notoriety that serial killers got that Anthony so craved, after all, he'd grown up with the complete opposite since his mum left. Any time he could get his hands on a true crime book whilst in prison, he'd take the opportunity to study it as if it were a religious textbook. He idolised those who discussed the majority of us. The rumours of his grandfather's incestuous relationship with his mother never left him, and the prison was particularly tough in that regard. His fellow inmates fuelled the pre-existing fire by persistently taunting him and reminding him that he was inbred even though he wasn't. Our main timeline starts on Friday, August 26, 1988. The Only Way Is Up by Yaz and the plastic population was just about to spend its sixth week at the top of the UK singles chart and Anthony Arkwright was about to be let go from his job at the scrapyard. Upon arriving at work, Anthony was told that his incredibly poor attendance was why he was being fired, so back he went into the world of unemployment. With his severance pay in his hand, Anthony headed to the one place he spent more time than anywhere else, the pub. With a few drinks in his system and his inhibitions lowered, Anthony decided to end the rumours about his granddad being his father once and for all. Between 4 and 5pm that afternoon, he made his way to his grandfather Stassis's house to confront him. He was advised by Stasis's 72-year-old housekeeper Elsa Conradite that he wasn't there more on Elsa later. Logically, Antony figured that his green-fingered grandad would likely be at his allotment where he loved to be. Once there, Antony made his way over to his grandad, but rather than confronting him with an open and honest conversation, Antony stabbed defenseless Stasis through the neck with the knife that he kept in his boot. The blade left Stasis paralysed after severing his spinal cord. Not satisfied with the attack, Antony dragged his grandad out of sight towards his shed and closed the door behind them. Looking around the shed and spotting an axe propped up against the wall, Antony grabbed it, lifted it high above his head and crashed it into Stasis' chest. Still not satisfied, Antony grabbed a lump hammer that reportedly weighed 14 pounds or 6.3 kilos and repeatedly struck Stasis in the head. With his objective now complete, Antony left his grandad in the shed, locked the door behind him and made his way back to Stassizer's house. Why? To commit more petty theft. He stole roughly three thousand pounds from his granddad. Just short of nine grand in today's money. That was his granddad's life savings. But what about Elsa? Didn't she attempt to stop him, or at least phone the police? Patience, dear listener. Like I said before, we'll come back to Elsa very soon. After killing his grandad and stealing his life savings, Anthony felt like celebrating by having a night on the town. Mexborough is another South Yorkshire town about three miles east of wath upon Dern, and that's where Anthony's solo pub crawl commenced. Whilst out drinking that Friday evening, Anthony never wasted an opportunity to tell anyone who'd listen about what he'd done earlier that day. Now he didn't exactly come flat out and say it, but he did drop hints which made people raise their eyebrows more than they usually would in his company. One phrase he kept repeating was, It's been murder on the allotment today. As the Friday evening turned into Saturday morning, Anthony's drinking sesh was coming to an end. He supposedly started a fight with some doormen and it didn't end well for the SAS enthusiast. He was embarrassed by the much more athletic men. One of them picked him up and launched him across the street after taking exception to the way Anthony was behaving. Walking away with his tail between his legs, Anthony arrived back at his flat at around 3am on the Saturday morning, August 27th, 1988. His emotions got the better of him, and he decided to take his frustrations out on someone he regularly bullied, his neighbour Raymond Ford. For a bit of context, the two men despised each other from the start. Cocksure Anthony constantly rowed with Raymond and another neighbour named Marcus Law. Anthony would regularly post envelopes filled with his own shit through Raymond's letterbox and also damage his property. A few days before Anthony returned home that weekend, he'd broken into Raymond's flat by splashing a window and proceeded to steal a clock and a microwave. Raymond reported the crime, he knew in his gut it was likely Anthony that had burgled him, and it's thought that Mr. SAS had initially planned to return to his neighbour's flat to cover his tracks. Unfortunately, he had far more sadistic plans for his 45-year-old neighbour. He was an easy target, after all. The former teacher and puzzle enthusiast was minding his own business watching TV in his armchair when from out of nowhere, he was attacked from behind by his neighbour, Anthony Arkwright. Anthony was completely naked, with the exception of a plastic devil mask covering his face. Armed with two knives, Antony stabbed Raymond anywhere between 250 and 500 times, depending on which source you believe, leaving deep incisions all over his body. One of the knives actually broke due to the excessive force used by Antony during the attack. With his one remaining knife, Antony meticulously removed every single organ from Raymond's body and scattered them all over the flat before leaving the knife in the empty cavity where his stomach used to be. The reason Anthony disemboweled Raymond was because Jack the Ripper did the same thing to his victims in Whitechapel. He was emulating one of his heroes. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. This next part of the story reminds me of when you go to a play and shout at the actors, He's behind you! Anthony returned to his flat and cleaned himself up. The time must have been close to 4am at this point. Within four hours, the police knocked on his door. They've caught him, you might be thinking. But remember, they had no idea of the massacre that had occurred only a few hours earlier, a few feet away from where they were stood. How frustrating is that in hindsight? Ironically, they paid Antony a visit on the back of Raymond's accusation that he'd burgled his flat. Not mentioning a thing, Antony happily went down to the local police station to answer some questions. He was kept there for a few hours and then released on bail. He was given a court date for the following week. He couldn't believe his luck. The police, albeit unknowingly, had just let a double murderer walk free. As he had the previous evening, Anthony went for some drinks around Mexborough, presumably still using his grandad's stolen life savings to pay for them. Another neighbour, Neil Hurst, recalled Anthony pointing at Marcus Law, the other neighbour he had beef with, and saying he was going to, quote, kill that bastard. In an almost step-by-step reenactment of the previous evening, as Saturday night turned into sunday morning august twenty eighth nineteen eighty eight for those keeping score, Anthony made his way home and decided to pay Marcus Law a visit. Marcus was a twenty-five year old man whose bungalow had been specially adapted to meet his needs as the result of a motorcycle accident when he was younger. Marcus required the use of a wheelchair. Anthony broke into Marcus's flat. Doesn't state anywhere if he was once again naked and wearing a devil mask, and he attacked him with a knife. In total, Marcus was stabbed over seventy times and his body was left inside his flat, as Raymond's had the previous evening. To ensure Marcus was given absolutely zero dignity, Antony forced one of his neighbour's crutches into his stomach after failing to disembowel him as he had Raymond. The final atrocity. Something which Antony later claimed was punishment for the amount of cigarettes Marcus had borrowed off him was to remove his eyeballs and place unlit cigarettes into the empty sockets. He also placed cigarettes into Marcus's ears, nostrils, and mouth. Once back at his flat, Antony cleaned himself up once more and by all accounts went to bed. The next morning he spotted Marcus's mum on her way to visit her son at the bungalow. Marcus was Tony and Norma Law's only surviving son. Their other son had sadly taken his own life at the age of 13 in 1973. Unable to resist taunting the innocent mother of the man he'd just killed, Anthony went out of his way to say how sorry he was to hear about poor old Marcus's suicide. Not knowing what the hell he was on about, Norma hurried to her son's flat, and words can't even begin to describe how she must have felt upon discovering Marcus's body. The police were soon called and Anthony was arrested shortly after lunchtime that day. This next part is pretty creepy and to be honest, I'm not even sure how the situation came about. Whilst detained, Anthony was interviewed and at some point he must have had access to a pack of playing cards. He gave them a wee shuffle and located the card he was looking for, the Four of Hearts. He placed the card face up on the table in full view of the two interviewing officers, pointed at it, and said, "This is the Mastercard. It means you have four bodies and a madman on the loose. I can see Marcus Law, but the others are indescribable. They are just too horrible to describe." It's unclear whether PC David Winter made his way to Raymond Ford's flat on the back of what Anthony said, or if he just made his way there to further question Raymond about the burglary he'd reported earlier that week. Either way. PC Winter could never have expected the sight he was greeted with as he made his way inside the flat. The floor was littered with empty alcohol bottles and other random bits of rubbish that the officer avoided as he conducted his search. It was only after he discovered the disembowelled corpse of Raymond Ford that PC Winter realised the things on the floor he was avoiding it wasn't rubbish. They were Raymond Ford's insides. He said there was blood on the walls. I opened the bedroom door and I thought there was this pile of clothes in the corner, but there was this body underneath this, and all the bits and pieces I'd seen in the hallway, that was all his organs. He'd removed just about every organ in his body. The next port of call for PC Winter after he called in that grim discovery was Stasis' house. Remember how I said we'd come back to Elsa earlier? PC Winter went inside the house and was greeted by seeing Elsa Conradite's body covered in blood. She'd been struck in the head with what would later be confirmed as an axe. With no sign of stasis, a gravely concerned PC Winter spoke with some of the neighbours who informed him about the 68-year-old's allotment hobby. A short while later, PC Winter discovered Anthony's granddad's body in the shed, exactly where his grandson had left him. Anthony was quickly charged with all four murders and remanded in custody at HMP Hull in the East Riding of Yorkshire. Whilst there, Anthony attempted to get some more attention by way of staging dirty protests in his prison cell and inventing a fifth murder victim who the police wasted their precious time looking for to no avail. His behaviour was so convincing that he was sent to Rampton Psychiatric Hospital to be assessed. Rampton Hospital is currently one of three high-security hospitals in England and Wales in which patients are only admitted if they are referred by a health professional and assessed by the hospital as meeting the criteria for admission. Unfortunately for Antony, he was thoroughly assessed and deemed perfectly sane enough to stand trial. One psychiatrist reportedly said, He is the sanest man in the building. The trial of Anthony Arkwright commenced in July 1989 at Sheffield Crown Court and it didn't take long for the defendant to change his plea on the advice of his lawyers. Despite initially pleading not guilty to all charges, Antony said he was guilty of the murders of Stasis, Raymond and Marcus, but that he remained not guilty concerning the murder of Elsa Conradite. The murder of Elsa was ordered to lie on court files, however Antony was not formally found guilty or sentenced on the back of that murder. Antony's barrister, James Chadwin QC, said, Arkwright is a young man who suffers from severe personality damage and disorder. He has shown signs of disturbance since the time his mother left him when he was four years old. Anthony Arkwright was initially handed a life sentence with a minimum term to serve of 25 years. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Borum said in his closing statement, The murders can only be described as horrible offences of sadistic cruelty. Cruelty for its own sake. I accept you have had a deprived and disturbed childhood, but that cannot be any excuse for the appalling cruelty and apparent sadistic pleasure with which you carried out these offences. There is nothing in the medical evidence to suggest anything to mitigate what you have done. I have no doubt, having read the reports of three eminent psychiatrists and others, that you constitute a serious danger to the public and will remain so for a very long time to come, and the horror of this case leaves me no option. But to pass life sentences. In 1990, a year after receiving his sentence, Anthony had his case overlooked by Home Secretary Jack Straw. He felt the 25 year minimum sentence was far too lenient and ordered it to be changed to a whole life order. Anthony Arkwright will therefore never be up for parole and will remain behind bars for the rest of his life. He is the youngest offender to have received a whole life order. In 2002, 14 years after his son Marcus was murdered by Anthony, 62-year-old Tony Law decided to end his own life by poisoning himself with car exhaust fumes. He simply couldn't cope with the horror of what had happened to what was his only surviving son at the time. Remember, his other son took his own life at the age of 13 in 1973. Marcus's mum Norma said, No parent could ever come to terms with something as traumatic as that. What happened to Marcus preyed on Tony's mind. He kept having nightmares Marcus was screaming for his dad, but he just couldn't get to him. We moved for a fresh start, but Tony couldn't escape the memories. In a shocking and controversial move, the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights ruled on July 9th, 2013 that whole-life orders, without the option of a review, amount to inhuman and degrading treatment. Let that sink in. They also ruled they were a breach of human rights. On the back of that ruling, Anthony Arkwright appealed against his whole life order on February 19th, 2014. Thankfully, his appeal was rejected by three high court judges who said the issuing of a whole life order in Anthony's case was completely lawful. To this day, Anthony has shown no remorse for his actions and he has never provided anyone with a motive for the killings. And that was the story of British murderer Anthony Arkwright. Thanks again to Jacob spencer Parkin and Anita Heaney for suggesting that case. Let me know your thoughts in the YouTube comments or on social media. I've got nine new reviews to read out this week from the UK, the USA, Canada, Australia and Poland. Apple podcast user Wayne Wick said, Hands down, this show has become my favourite podcast to listen to since discovering it a few weeks ago. Each episode makes me feel as if I am living it due to the depth and detail given. Keep up the great work. Kev Scott left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Came across your podcast a few weeks ago and totally hooked. I'm a few seasons behind, but catching up quickly. My new go-to when I'm out with my dog. Apple podcast user Dave Darnu, a listener who's previously bought me a beer, said, If you're looking for a UK-based true crime podcast, look no further. Stuart provides a great insight and context into these chilling cases and he really does his research. I've really liked the guest episodes of Late. This is something I'd like to see more of. Keep up the good work, Stuart. Five out of five, pod. Facebook user Damien Moscrop said, Brilliantly scripted and read in a proper accent. Great bedtime listening brought to you by a true gent. Keep them coming, Stu. Apple podcast user Kate B417 said, I finally finished all seasons. You can definitely hear Stuart's growth from the beginning until now, always short and succinct. While waffling does get longer the more comfortable he gets, sorry about that, you can always skip it if you're not into it. Love the accent and the attempt to at others, great listening and lightens the tough topics a bit. Do another group one like the Chris Benoit episode. I'm hoping to do Owen Hart at some point with the same people. Watch this space. Apple podcast user Sarah Tonin Addict said, easy to listen to true crime stories and the lovely British accent of the podcast presenter. What more can a girl ask for? Apple podcast user Tibs Sargent, I guess that is, said, interesting show with a great host who's a pleasure to listen to. Apple podcast user Sipping Snap said, excellently researched and very informative podcast. Love your accent. We here in the US of A are new fans of yours. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Finally, Apple Podcast user Barbara the dog Wash Lady said, Just found this one and now enjoying all episodes. Really like the format. Short, sharp, but can't say sweet. Murder is never sweet. Keep it going, you have a new fan. P.S. The more I listen to true crime, I'm so glad I work with and groom dogs. Thank you so much, Wayne, Kev, Dave, Damien, Kate, serotonin addict, Tib Sargent, Sipping, Snapped, and Barbara the dog Wash Lady for leaving the show such lovely five-star reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at Britishmurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me a Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on my website. My mum recently bought me a beer at buymeacoffee.com/slash British Murders. She said, love every episode. Not sure about the accent, lol. Keep going. I'm a very proud mum in Tenerife. Isn't it amazing? Most of my listeners love my Yorkshire accent, but my own mum doesn't. Can't make it up, can you? Thank you, Claire McRae, who has recently joined the show's Patreon. Cheers and welcome, Claire. I really appreciate your membership. And please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. My final thank you goes to Shannon Feeney of Chic Creations. Shannon sent me a bunch of British Murders merch for my daughter and me. I honestly can't explain how grateful I am. Very appreciative. Please check out Shannon's Facebook store. I'll link it in the description. If you want some high quality handcrafted gifts for all occasions. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.